listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Our text for this morning's message comes from the book of Acts, and this is going to be kind of a two-part mini-series, I guess you could call it, Acts 9, verses 1 through 20. This is the conversion of the Apostle Paul, and we're still in the midst of Easter season, so we move into the book of Acts, which describes the development of the early church, and one of the very first uh, converts is the Apostle Paul, who becomes um, a great church planter and missionary and author of much of our New Testament. So let's hear a little bit about his story. I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. This is Acts 9, verses 1 through 20. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said to him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that you would do your work upon each heart and each mind and each soul 
who is gathered. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear, though as for the passing there had worn them really about the same. And both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I didn't write that, in case there was any question. That's from Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken. What road are you traveling? Where have you been and where are you going? We all have our journeys, our starting points, waypoints, and destinations. So what about you? What road are you on and where on that road do you find yourself this morning? Now, to the untrained eye, every road may look exactly the same. But after working as a civil engineer in highway design and construction for a number of years, I discovered that roads vary drastically in length, quality, and shape. Some are short and flat, some are long and hilly, some are straight, some are curvy, some stretch infinitely into the distance, some you can just barely see around the corner. Roads are made of all sorts of materials, too. Gravel, reclaimed bituminous. Concretes and asphalt, just to name a few. Some are brand new and in mint condition. Others have seen years of wear and tear, and they're just kind of riddled with potholes. Some have a guardrail to keep you from going off the edge. Others, you can Google just dangerous roads, and you can see that some just hug mountainsides, and there's little between you and a thousand-foot drop off of a sheer cliff. Roads go through plains, plateaus, forests, over mountains, and through valleys. They cross massive bodies of water and even tunnel under oceans. But, but every road has one thing in common. They all start somewhere and they all end somewhere. So what road do you find yourself traveling today? Where have you been and where are you going? Well, whatever it is, our text this morning, if it tells us one thing, it's that God will meet you where you are on whatever road you happen to be traveling. And when you encounter God, you will never be the same again. Saul was on a road too, the road to Damascus. You may know kind of how this story goes. Possibly you've heard it before. Saul was traveling to Damascus from Jerusalem, which would have been a journey about 140 miles. After receiving letters from the high priest in Jerusalem, giving him permission to imprison Christians that he found in the Jewish synagogues 
in Damascus. And why was he headed to Damascus? Well, the text tells us pretty plainly and clearly. It says he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And, and this is no exaggeration. Not long before this, in Acts chapter 7, just a couple chapters back, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death outside of Jerusalem. And Saul was there for this. He stood by watching. In fact, if you read the text, it even says that he approved of their killing him. Elsewhere, we learn that Saul, he hauled Christians off to jail to their deaths. And what's, what's more is that he was actually proud of it. He thinks that he's doing a, a virtuous thing. He believes that killing Christians is a service to the Lord. He brags about it. Saul describes himself as a Pharisee among Pharisees, which is just another way of saying that he was like super hardcore when it came to the Jewish faith and dead set, literally, against any perceived threats to it, such as Christianity, which early on, this is what Christianity was. It was perceived as just another sect of Judaism. Here's what Paul says in Galatians. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father's. Saul was a warrior for Judaism, and his number one enemy was Christianity, Christians. I love how Charles Spurgeon describes him. He says, a more furious bigot it is impossible to imagine. That was Saul, and this was the road he was traveling, literally on his way to arrest and imprison and kill Christians. In short, Saul was on his way to do some pretty serious sinning. But before he got there, something happened, didn't it? On the road to Damascus, Saul encountered Christ. A light from heaven flashed, knocking Saul to the ground. In most of the paintings you'll see of this, Saul is, is, such as this one, Saul is riding a horse, which would, would have been very likely. We don't know for sure, but it, it makes sense given the, the length of the journey. And this light from heaven flashed, knocking him to the ground. The voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now go up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Paul got up, he opened his eyes, but he still couldn't see anything, right? He was blinded by this light. So his traveling companions took him by the arms, and, and they actually had to lead him into the city where he prayed and fasted for three days until God sends this guy by the name of Ananias, a disciple, to lay hands on him and to restore his sight. By the way, we'll talk more about Ananias next week. Immediately, Saul was, was baptized. I love that. There's, there's no question. There's no delay. Immediately. Saul was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. And after spending several days with the disciples in Damascus, he headed out to preach about Jesus in the synagogues. And you may know the rest of the story. 
Saul goes on to plant churches all across Asia Minor, traveling as far as Rome, possibly beyond, in his fiery quest to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, right? This was kind of his title, the apostle to the Gentiles. He became God's chosen instrument for establishing the early church, authoring half of the books that we have in the New Testament today. The story, this story of of Saul, this biography, is what we call a conversion story, a U-turn. You're going one day, and then something sends you off in another direction. You have a, a change of heart, a change of mind. And that's what happens when we encounter Jesus. We don't keep living the way we did before. But instead, what does God do? He, he transforms us, guiding us off of the road that, that we had been traveling on and sending us off on a completely new road, right? We're, we're going one way, and then we're going somewhere else. It, really, this whole concept of conversion is nothing short of, of miraculous. The results of conversion are astounding, By any measure, Saul was a really, really bad dude. I mean, like, I've done some stuff. I'm not going to tell you what stuff. I've done some stuff, though. But murdering Christians in the name of God and then bragging about it like it was the best thing I had ever done, that is not on my list. Previous work experience, studied the Torah, learned under Gamaliel, lived a holy life, and murdered Christians. If there was ever an enemy of the gospel, it was St. Paul. But when God got hold of him, right, his entire life changed. His world was turned upside down. He saw the light and the error of his ways was revealed. Everything he thought was right turned out to be wrong. The good he thought he was doing turned out to actually be bad. The straight road he thought he'd taken turned out to be crooked. As Peter L. Haynes notes, when someone is headed in the wrong direction, it may take a blinding light to expose his own blindness. You see, like Saul, we too are born spiritually blind. Running down our own roads to Damascus at a breakneck pace, heading in the direction we think is right, Certain that our motivations are pure, that our presuppositions are the right ones, that we are good, everyone else is bad, we are right, everyone else is wrong. So often we are the ones Jesus spoke about in Mark 4.12, the ones who are ever seeing but never perceiving. The reality is that our spiritual compasses are so broken That north is south, east is west. In other words, they're unreliable guides. We don't know our right hand from our left would be another biblical way of saying this. Have you ever been dead certain you were right about something and then come to find out later you were wrong? Like you've been doing it a really long time and then find out that, man, this is not actually the way that it's supposed to work? It's an incredibly humbling thing. Luckily, as my wife will attest, God has blessed me with the spiritual gift of never being wrong. So, 
it doesn't really apply to me. Um, maybe of others of you can identify. In all seriousness, though, just a cursory glance at history is enough to show that human beings are terrible judges of right and wrong. For hundreds of years, Bible-believing Christians in America supported the, pla- the practice of slavery, treating another human being made in the image of God like property. And you know what? They even use Scripture to support it, pointing to passages like Ephesians 5, 5, 5 which reads, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear. They would use verses like that to justify and, and rationalize kidnapping, beating, and raping African Americans, the consequences of which are still very present today. Many other examples come to mind. Crusades, the Thirty Years' War, the Inquisition. And where did all of these start? It started in the hearts and the minds of sinful human beings. See, we're all ancestors of Adam. That means the same blood courses through our veins as well. The good news, though, is that God, in His infinite mercy and wisdom, does, performs, in a sense, a spiritual blood transfusion because God sent a second Adam to put right what the first Adam got wrong. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, came to save the world from sin through His life, death, and resurrection for you. And what's more, as Saul tells us elsewhere, all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You see, God's miraculous conversion of sinners never stops. It's never just this once and done kind of thing. He is always looking to turn us from our own crooked ways to His ways. Like Saul, we too are natural-born enemies of God. But what we learn here from Paul's story is that God doesn't treat us like enemies. He treats us like friends. One of my favorite parts of this text is, you've probably noticed this, who is it that takes all of the initiative in Saul's conversion? Who takes the initiative? Jesus, God, all of it. He doesn't wait for Saul to get his act together before he he meets him on the road to Damascus and converts him. He doesn't wait for Saul to see the error of his ways and to come to his senses. Instead, Jesus just shows up and blinds him with a light right when Saul is at his worst, literally when he was on the road to kill Christians. Saul was not expecting Jesus to show up in the midst of his broken, wayward life. Jesus showed up anyway, and as a result, he brought him to repentance. He brought Saul to faith. And you know what? Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our acts together before he comes to us either. I think a lot of times, we kind of feel like we have to clean up our lives sufficiently in order for God to first love us. Like, we need to do some serious spiritual house cleaning if we want to qualify for God's love, right? We think that His love, like all other loves we experience here on earth, 
is dependent on some degree, some small degree even, on our own moral performance, right? You hear this. People won't say it that way. We won't articulate it in those terms. But you hear this attitude when people say things like, I don't go to church because I'm not good enough. Or God would never want anything to do with someone like me. You see, our default operating system as human beings tells us that love corresponds to the worthiness of the recipient. I'll say that again. Love, this is our, our default way of thinking, love corresponds to the worthiness of the recipient, the worthiness of the beloved. In other words, we believe, and we can't get this out of our brains, that our own lovability must factor into the equation. But what today's story teaches us is the beautiful gospel truth that we are unconditionally loved despite how unlovable we are and that this love springs from God's fatherly heart rather than our own performance. Jesus shows up when we're at our worst, not when we're at our best. He forgives us, declaring, as Saul says in Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Through His death and resurrection, He conquers the power of sin and the devil. He frees us from the fear of never being enough, of never measuring up. For those who believe in Jesus, God looks on us with Christ-tinted lenses. Think of it like that. He gives us, he looks at us with Christ-tinted lenses, and he says, in you I am well pleased. Not because of how good you are. Not because of your Sunday school attendance record or how much you give to the offering. Not because of how faithful you are to your Bible reading plan. Not because of how many hours a week you spend on your knees in prayer. Not because of how good a father, mother, son, or daughter you are. Not because of how many years you've managed to stay on the wagon. Not because of how smart you are, how good of an athlete you are, or how many friends you have. Not because of how many people like your latest posts on Instagram or Snapchat. Not because of how many hours you spend volunteering for your community. That's not why God is well pleased with you. God is pleased with you for one reason and one reason only. Jesus. Because God is well pleased with Jesus, He is well pleased with you too, brother and sister in Christ. But God doesn't stop there, does He? As one of my seminary professors used to say, it's true that God loves us just the way we are, but He also loves us too much to let us stay that way, right? Conversion means change. It means a U-turn. It means an about face. It means God gets hold of your heart and He transforms it through the power of the Holy Spirit. And as the Apostle Paul found out on the road to Damascus, man, this is an incredibly painful process. Because repentance always means dying to ourselves. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. When we encounter the risen Christ, we can never be the same again. And that's not a command, by the way, like, you've encountered Jesus, now go out and don't be changed, or go out and never be the same again. That's not a command. It's a promise, a promise that when Jesus meets us along the road and he knocks us down off of our high horses with his brilliant light, it changes us. God kills us in order to make us alive. He brings us to the end of ourselves, to the point where we, like the Pharisee in Jesus' parable, can do nothing other than fall to our knees and cry out, Lord, God, have mercy on me a sinner. It's then that God begins His work of conversion. And when God gets hold of people, some pretty amazing things happened. As Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon uh, says this of the Apostle Paul, God transforms the foe into a friend. He makes the man who was a warrior against the gospel a soldier for it. God does the same thing with us. As Saul himself tells us in Romans 5.10, We were God's enemies, but He made us His friends through the death of His Son. Now that we are God's friends, how much more will we be saved by Christ's life? So back to our original question this morning. What, what road are you traveling Where have you been and where are you going? We'd all probably answer those questions differently. But whatever response you give, the truth is that God wants to meet you where you are. There's nothing He can't work with. There's no road that's like outside of His jurisdiction. God comes to us where we're at. And His work of conversion never stops. He meets our wandering hearts in the midst of their brokenness to heal them, restore them, and to put us back on the right road, which is really just another way of saying He leads us back to Himself because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, sometimes we think of conversion in the sense of a non-believer becoming a believer, And this is certainly true. Conversion, though, takes many different forms. And it's not just for non-believers. That may sound strange, but hear me out. To say that I, as a believer, have no need of conversion today, 
that I have no need of having my heart changed and transformed is really just another way of saying I am without sin. The road I'm on is fine. I don't need Jesus to change me. In a very real sense, then, we are all in need of daily conversion. There's a reason that Martin Luther's first of his theses was the entire life of a Christian is a life of repentance. Maybe you, like the Apostle Paul, find yourself encountering Christ for the first time this morning. Or maybe you're encountering Him for the thousandth time or the ten thousandth time. But in either case, God is doing the exact same thing that He's always done. He's restoring messy, messed up people in a messy, messed up world to a right relationship with Him through the shed blood of His Son. Whenever we call upon His name, His promise is that He will always heal, restore, and forgive. Why? Because God's grace knows no limits. God's grace knows no limits. And He wants to do all of that for you this morning, too. So as we wrap up our time together today, Stan, you can go to the last slide. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I want to leave you with the lyrics of this old, well-known hymn. My hope is that these words would become our daily confession and prayer as well. We've got them on the screen, so I invite you to just please say these with me now in closing. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God, He to rescue me from danger, interposed His precious blood. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Amen. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.